This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. It's a brand new week, and I'm excited. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is the Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, the questions about stuff going on in your life, anything and everything, nothing's off limits. You need only to call us. 210-340-9585 is the main number. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can send them in using our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. Also, if you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now banner at the top of the screen. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer who is waiting for those phone calls. Our main number one more time is 340-9585. Just on sort of a scheduling note, tonight, ladies, is our final sweet summer devotion um, uh, for the summer programs. And and, uh, uh, Tanya Pinnell will be uh, our speaker. And that will be a blessing. That's at 7 o'clock here live at Calvary Chapel. Uh, You can also watch it at calvarysa.com. Let's get to questions that have been sent in, and then we'll kind of move on from there. Um, This is from Patricia. Um, Through the email line, she said, I have another Bible question for you. Um, I'm reading the Old Testament, and it seems like no matter how often David fights the Philistines, or even Samson for that matter, that these people never get completely and utterly destroyed. They must have been a hardy people and very numerous. They always bounce back, so to speak. Why were they such a hard people to defeat? I don't know if my question makes sense, but thank you, Pastor Ron, for your time. Um, it makes pat- perfect sense, Patricia. You know, um, they, they were never utterly destroyed, in part because God had um, faithless kings. Uh, Saul could have destroyed them all. Uh, God certainly would have given them into his hand, but he always stopped short. One of the lessons that we learn in reading about the failures of the Old Testament kings is that they always stop short of the fullness of God's plan for them, and that was the case here. Now, the Philistines um, were were not just a hardy people. They were strong people. They were, were centuries ahead in terms of metallurgy. They had weapons. Um, you can read about Goliath's um, armor. 
um, just just the, the engineering that went into that and the ability to 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 make those uh, weapons uh, was overwhelming. They were they were eons ahead of the people of their time, and that's why they were able to be so strong and why they were able to last so long. They just had better armor, better weaponry. So, uh, Patricia, that's the main reason. Uh, But even still, we know uh, they had chariots before other people did. But we know still God would have given them into David's hands had they simply utterly destroyed them. So that's the practical reason. Now, there's a second part to this question. And she said, uh, this occurred to me after I sent my reply to you. And here's the key. God allowed the Philistines to oppress the children of Israel for their disobedience and worshiping other gods so that they would turn back to him. Am I close? And Patricia, not only close, that is exactly why. That's why every enemy that prospered against Israel, everyone, it's the reason that they were permitted by God to afflict God's people. God uses them as instruments of judgment. Now, certainly not just the Philistines, but you can go uh, to the Midianites. You can go during the time of the judges. You can go down the corridor of time and space. Um, every people in, into Babylon and, and King Nebuchadnezzar and those that followed him, um, they were all allowed to oppress God's people because God's people were obstinate. You know, you'd think that if you were an Israelite, now we're, we're often critical of the Israelites, and yet we, uh, in the year 2020, we do the same things. We're constantly disobedient. We don't learn the lessons, and we wonder, well, why didn't they learn the lessons? Um, the, the, the reason that, that God had those people in their lives was to test, to re- cause his people to return to him. And it worked a lot. You know, the theme of Judges is uh, it was a time when men did what seemed right to them. That's a period of about 400 years in the book of Judges. And over and over and over, the same things happened. God um, sent an enemy against them because of their willful disobedience, because of their their horrible, horrible sin and, and idol worship. Um, finally, things would get so bad that they would cry out, leaders would cry out to God, and he would, in his mercy, rescue them. Then there would be a time, usually for a generation of people, 60, 70, 80 years, where they would follow the Lord. And then as children were raised up and became the leaders, uh, they forgot all about God and they plunged back into the same vicious cycle. So that's always the case, Patricia, in the Old Testament when you see God's people uh, being oppressed. Very, very, very important. Thank you for calling. I appreciate it very, very much. This is... The word to stand on for life. Let's go to Jim on line one from San Antonio. Jim, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Thanks, Pastor Ron, for taking the call. Appreciate your sharing wisdom. And go ahead. Sorry. No, just my pleasure. Question about prayer, as it's uh, talked about in in the Bible. Um, Let's read just from First John five. It says, verse fourteen and fifteen, and this is the confidence which, which we have before Him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked for. Put that next to Jesus' instruction in the Sermon on the Mount in, in Matthew 7. 
verse 7 through, well, just following, and it says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who receives, who asks, receives, and he who seeks, finds, and to him who knocks, the door will be opened. So my basic question is, I think that second passage, Matthew, is exhorting us to be persistent in prayer. Uh, you know, the, like the persistent widow. But I had a question asked, like, why is there no qualification? Because it looks like a really broad <laughs> encouragement. Just ask. You know, why didn't Jesus say, according to God's will? I can do that, uh, Jim. That's a great question. But the answer... Uh, you have to you have to take in context, and and it starts at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus is basically saying, and and you know we we have a tendency to read chapters, and our brain stops at the end of chapter five, and then stops at the end of chapter six. Well, well, the the, the message that Jesus gave didn't stop; it was one continuous message that that people were listening to. So if if you were um, poor in spirit. If you're one who mourns, if you're humble, and if you're living a life as outlined by the Sermon on the Mount, starting with the Beatitudes and going all the way through, then you can ask anything and everything because you're going to be right in the middle of God's will. There was no qualification necessary. Now we go down to First John, and we're, we're talking now um, maybe 50 years after Jesus' death. And think about this. John is telling people, look, believe, because this is the promise of God. If you ask anything according to His will, you have what you've asked for because your prayers are heard. And so he sets the context all of those decades later but Jesus didn't have to when that was a part of the message on the Sermon on the Mount. Now, obviously, Jim, and here's the problem for us. We can't live a life based on the Sermon on the Mount. In our own strength, we can't do it. And that was the whole point on the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is saying, if you want to be saved, if you want to be blessed, if you want to be um, um, right in the middle of my perfect will, here is the kind of life to live. Now, I don't know about you, Jim, but somebody hits me in the cheek. I'm not going to give him my other cheek. Jesus is simply saying, look, you have heard that it was said, and then he'll go one step further, but I see unto you. So he was telling them not only about the letter of the law, but even the more difficult spirit behind the letter of the law. And if we're walking in the spirit, if we're living a life based on that one principle, others first, then what we ask for is going to be, by definition, in His will. And a prayer that we ask in His will is going to be answered. So, Jim, I hope that makes sense to you. Uh, John is simply, um, all those years later, he is um, writing to a broader audience that didn't hear Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, you've got to take that whole thing together in context and realize that the only way we can do that is surrender. Now, one more comment, Jim. When we are submitted to the will of God in our life, when we're following after Jesus, I always say all the time, just be with Jesus. When we're walking with Jesus, then the things that we're going to ask for 
are going to be in his will. You know, I had a lot of time this morning for prayer, and it was a great time to be out with the Lord. And yet, while I'm with him and speaking to him and know that his presence is with me, I'm still not sure that my heart is right in these things or that I have the the mind of Christ on the things that I'm asking for. So I'm constantly in my prayers with the requests that I'm making. I'm saying, Lord, of course, thy will, not my will be done. And Jim, when we ask for things in, in the will of God, we're not copping out, it's not weak faith. We're simply saying that, Lord, if you don't want to give me this, I trust you. If this isn't the way to get this prayer answered, or this isn't the time to get this prayer answered, Lord, I trust you. And if we get that, then we're going to get a lot of prayers heard and a lot of prayers answered. The other thing that we can know for sure is that the prayers that we didn't get answered, Jim, are prayers that we're not at that moment in the will of God. There is no doubt. Every prayer in the will of God he hears, and we have what we've asked for. So that is perfectly promised and delivered. But even Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane asked that this cup could pass. And in the middle of his agony, he cried out, Nevertheless, thy will, not my will be done. So I think that's the key, Jim. Again, the Sermon on the Mount, if we could live that life as Jesus was living that life, then there would be no qualifications needed. You know, there are other troubling passages about prayer. You know, uh, Jesus said, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to that mountain, be thou removed and cast into the sea. And, you know, we think, well, wait a minute, Jesus, why would you want to move a mountain in the sea? Jesus isn't interested in moving mountains. In a Jewish thought, we can go back to Zechariah, the prophecy of Zechariah, to establish this. But the idea of a mountain in a Jewish mind is, is an insurmountable and impossible problem. And Jesus said, no, no, no. Nothing is insurmountable when I'm the one who's answering the prayers. So that's what it's all about. Jim, thank you for the question. I appreciate questions about prayer uh, a lot. Here is a question from Mitch. No, this is from Mary. I'm sorry, Mary. Mary says, I struggle with wondering how angels could have fallen. I mean, they saw God and still rebelled, and that's with a question mark. Mary, that is a question that we won't have an answer for until we get to heaven. I, too, struggle with how angels who could have been in the presence of God saw his glory understood that he was responsible for creating them, for blessing them, for giving them access and power and all those things, how they could have fallen. I guess their sin nature was just like our sin nature. And we know that Satan, who is a master manipulator, deceived a third of the angels, and they fell with him. Mary, I don't know if you remember the old television show, Touched by an Angel. You can still see it on on some stations and 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 while there's a whole lot about that show that that certainly was contrary to what the Bible teaches, the one thing I think that that show did better than anything else is show the struggle in the angelic realm between the fallen angels and the the angels that kept their first estate. 
I think they did a really, really, really good job with that. And uh, at one point, the the main character in in the story, and for this moment, her name escapes me, but I know it. Um, she looked at an angel who had fallen and was now in the middle of a bunch of really, really dark stuff. And she just looked at her and she said, how could you? We were with him, she said. And you rebelled. And the angel who fell just got angry. Oh, don't you give me that self-righteous stuff kind of thing, kind of response. And, and you know, it's a question I think that is, is fair to, to ask. I don't know how they could have or why they would have, uh, but they did. I'll take it one step further, Mary, and then go on to another question. The um, uh, same thing is going to happen at the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. We're going to live for 1,000 years in a perfect environment with justice, perfect justice, with holiness and righteousness, with nobody being taken advantage of because Jesus won't let it happen. And at the end of the 1,000 years, Satan is going to be let loose because all of the people who uh, were, were forced to live under Jesus' rule and who were born during the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth, they won't have had to make a choice. They will have been forced to serve God. And suddenly, um, at the end, a thousand years of perfection, what's going to happen is they're going to be made to choose, and the enemy is going to manipulate again, and the numbers of people that rebel are are described as like the numbers of sand on the sea, seashore. So it's just one of those things that there's really no answer to until we get to heaven and find out. Thank you for the question, Mary. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Reggie asks, when Satan took Jesus to show him the kingdoms of the world, how could he do that? Well, the answer, Reggie, is that Satan is a powerful supernatural being. And this was Jesus' test. Everybody gets tested. Even Jesus got tested. But I think we've got to remember this was a supernatural event. When he showed him the kingdoms of the world, he had the power, the authority to do that. Given the will of God who is ultimately in control, this was something that God the Father allowed. And this was a test by Jesus. And, of course, when you go into the Gospel accounts and read about that wilderness temptation, um, those are temptations that we understand. So he did it with supernatural power. And I think sometimes we have a tendency to forget just how powerful, supernaturally so, the devil really is. So when he took him and showed him the kingdom of the world, uh, when he took him high, high up on a a, a wall, um, it was a supernatural event, Reggie. Good question. Uh, Donald wants to know, Pastor Ron, are you a cessationist? Uh, For the rest of you, if you may not know, a cessationist is somebody who does not believe that the gifts of the Spirit are for today. And in some regard, uh, especially the sign gifts. Um, Donald, I, I am not... I am not a cessationist. I believe that the gifts of the Spirit are in operation today. But I also think, and this is important, I think we've got to read the Bible critically so that we don't 
confuse the signs and wonders that were designed to validate the ministry of the apostles and to um, uh, to validate the, the, the birth of the church, for example. Um, those were signs and wonders that will never be repeated. Acts chapter 2 will never be repeated on this earth. That was a one-time-only event. However, the gift of tongues is a gift that is for today. And I have the gift of tongues, so yes, we are uh, uh, believers, uh, continuationists, uh, some call it, and and believe that the gifts of the Spirit uh, are for today. Again, we have to be careful and scriptural when we use those gifts. And I think part of the reason people become cessationists, Donald, is because they see the abuse of the gifts of the Spirit over and over and over, and they just get to the point where, well, this is just all nonsense. And Paul actually addresses that very thing in his letters to the church at Corinth. He says, look, if an unbeliever comes in and sees you all speaking in tongues at the same time, they're going to think you've lost your mind, and, and, and they rightly should. So those things are important. We need to use the gifts, which are gifts from God. We need to use those gifts in the manner prescribed by God. And I think too often in many of our churches that are sort of over-the-top charismatic, Donald, I think um, we, we just throw off all restraint and anything and everything goes, you know, from being slain in the spirit to um, shaking on the floor to barking and laughing to all kinds of things uh, that we've seen uh, just in the, in the years I've been walking with the Lord. Um, and I think we just have to be really, really careful uh, about how we use the gifts that are given by God. We're stewards of those gifts, and they have to be used according to his terms. One other thought, Donald, if you read the book of Acts closely, especially in the early part, and it says many signs and wonders were done, but then the next words are by the apostles. And so while there are people in the book of Acts that, that exercise supernatural gifts of the Spirit in sometimes marvelous ways, uh, Philip did, um, not an apostle. Um, Stephen did, the first martyr of the church, not an apostle. But but when it says the signs and wonders, many miraculous signs were performed by the apostles. Those signs were intended to validate the message and the ministry of the apostles. So it's really important. It was never intended that somebody would have the gift of healing. Peter, after he healed the beggar at the gate, beautiful, wouldn't have walked around saying, you know, I have the gift of healing. He would have walked very circumspectly and respectfully in the use of that gift. And you also notice that he didn't go around healing everybody. It wasn't just like one of those things, let's have a crusade. He didn't do that at all. He was led by the Spirit, and too often we've got people in church that are trying to convince the rest of us that miracles are uh, ordinary to be expected every day when by definition miracles are extraordinary. And so I'm not a cessationist, Donald. Um, We function in the gifts. We believe in the gifts of the Spirit. But we put really tight controls established by the Holy Spirit in His Word. Good question, Donald. Thank you very, very much. Hey, 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. The phones have been quiet. We've got a couple of minutes. Um, 
Neville says, uh, do you think the devil is behind conspiracy theories? Um, Neville, he sure uses them. I don't know whether he's behind them or not. But let me tell you something, and I've, I've experienced this personally. I've experienced this with people uh, in the church um, over the years. Um, when we start believing in conspiracy theories, when we start down that rabbit trail, believe me, there is an evil supernatural force that we're going to run right into. And yes, I think the devil is maybe not behind them, but he certainly uses them to his advantage. And um, if you met a flat earther, or if you met somebody who um, believes that we never made it to the moon, those kind of things, uh, man, there is an anger and there is a, um, a, a spirit of rebellion and you can tell that the enemy's really and truly gotten a hold of them. And I've seen it over and over and over. Uh, so um, I certainly think that demonic power is invited into our lives when we go down those trails, Neville. So don't believe conspiracy theories. Avoid them. Um, let the Lord minister to you through his word. Good question. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in the Monday show. 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR. This is the word to stand up for life. We'll be back in two minutes. Don't have time to call into the word to stand on for life? No problem. If you've got questions, you can email them to Pastor Ron at PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. That's PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our Monday show, 340-9585. Here's a question just in to our email inbox from Scott. He said, what does Paul really mean, the granting of mercy in 2 Timothy 1.18? Did Anasaphorus do something wrong? And what is he referring to when he says, on that day? Let me read the, the verse, um, Scott, and then we will, um, I'll answer the question. 2 Timothy 1.18, by the way, I just taught this yesterday. It says, may the Lord grant that he will find mercy from uh, the Lord on that day, you know very well in how many ways he helped me in Ephesus. A couple of things, Scott. Um, when he talked about the granting of mercy, that was just a, may the Lord grant him mercy on the day he stands before him in judgment. Now keep in mind, the judgment of believers is not a judgment for salvation. So when you hear on that day, it's always referring to the day of judgment. In this particular case with Onesiphorus, it's a reference to the Bema Seed of Christ where we will all stand. First Corinthians chapter 3, we'll all stand before the Lord and our works will be tested to see what kind of works they were, whether they were good works 
or good-for-nothing works, whether there was a value in them, a value for God and the kingdom of God, or whether there was no value. No, uh, a no-value work would be a work that we did with the wrong motive, um, that we did for the wrong reasons. Um, maybe we did it to get attention from other people. We were just being nice. Um, you know, there's going to be a lot of works that just sort of go up in smoke on that day. But the rest of us, and certainly with honest before us, on that day, he's going to receive rewards. And when I taught this yesterday, Scott, I said the, the, the rewards in Onesiphorus is going to, in the context of the passage, he's talking about two men, Phygelus and Hermogenes, who deserted him. He's later in this book going to talk about Demas, even Demas deserting him because he loved the things of this world. And Onesiphorus is set in contrast to them. So what Paul is saying, and this guy was a faith hero. This was one who, when others, because they were ashamed of Paul's chains, they um, they deserted Paul, you know, thinking something like, well, if Paul was really in the will of God, he wouldn't be in prison. If Paul was an apostle, God would bless him and wouldn't let him be stuck in prison, those kind of things. And Paul had to deal with that kind of stuff, just like we have to deal with that kind of stuff. But then in contrast, he sets this faith giant on Esiphorus, and he and basically he's saying he didn't care what anybody thought. He wasn't ashamed of my chains. He understood that what I was doing was for the glory of God and for the kingdom of God. And this is a man who went out of his way to help me, to find me, and to provide comfort. Now, we know a couple of things about Paul that um, are, are hard for us. Scott, one is that um, he didn't like being alone. Paul thrived in fellowship with other believers. And so when Anisiphorus showed up, later he will say, only Luke is with me. And when Anisiphorus shows up, well, it's going to be a great relief and a great source of comfort to him. And so Paul is simply pleading sort of a personal prayer, Lord, have mercy on him on the day that he stands before you. And no doubt, Scott, that's exactly what happened. He did not do anything wrong. This isn't about salvation. Only unbelievers are going to stand before God for judgment. Um, But we're going to have our works judged. And basically what Paul is saying is, this one work was so special to me, Lord. May this one work that he did nullify anything that he did that wasn't as pleasing to you? That's a great question. Thank you very, very much. Here is a question from Mitch. He said, Pastor Ron, how can you believe in eternal security in light of Hebrews 6? Now, before I go to Hebrews 6, Mitch, let me ask you a question. How can you not believe in eternal security in light of Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. God gave the Holy Spirit to us as a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance. Now that's strong language. So, anything that would contradict a very clear statement, we've got to look at it closely and in context. Now let me read the passage to you. And... um, i get to my Bible here. Uh, let me read the passage to you, and then, then we'll talk about it. He says in Hebrews 6, verse 4, 
He says, it is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance, because to their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Now, that's really strong language, and Scott, honestly, I'm sorry, this isn't Scott's question. This is um, Mitch. Mitch's question. Uh, Mitch, um, um, the, the, the passage um, has to be understood in light of what was going on in the churches that, that, that I believe the author was Paul, the, the, the churches that Paul was writing to. Now, what we know, if you piece together the clues, now remember, Hebrews has six, some people say seven warnings. And Paul is trying to edify them. He's trying to encourage them. And they're in danger of falling away. And the reason they're in danger of falling away is because of the persecution. Now, over a period of about 20 years, as best we can determine, um, this is a church of people that were being persecuted. And he says in chapter 10 of Hebrews, at first you joyfully, gladly accepted the confiscation of your property. Why? Because you were suffering for Jesus, what he was saying. It was a badge of honor. And then he's watching this church slide away. And because of persecution, they're just getting tired of it. And basically he says to them, hang in there. Now, here's what was going on. And again, you piece this together from the text. You don't have to go outside the text. But just looking at the whole book, and especially in the context of each of the warnings, these Converts to Christianity from Judaism were being told that their persecution would stop if they would recant their faith in Jesus and turn back to Judaism. In other words, the people persecuting, we'll leave you alone and everything will be good again. We'll be brothers again. And so what Paul is doing is he's telling them, you can't do that. Are you going to have sacrifices for sin again when you know that only Jesus paid the price for your sins? And so he's telling them, you know, if you take that step back into Judaism, you really weren't saved in the first place. Now, let's look at another part of this critically. I want two more things. If you read it the way you're reading it, Mitch, Verse 6 makes it impossible even for a backslider to return to the Lord. If they fall away, it's impossible for them to be brought back to repentance because to their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace. We know that's not true. 1 John 1, 9 says that we confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us and purify us from all unrighteousness. So it can't be saying what you think it's saying. So here's what Paul is saying. Where are you going to go for forgiveness of sins if you go back to the Jewish sacrificial system? Where are you going to go for hope when the Judaism you rejected is where you return? I also want to point out this. Look at verse 9 in that same passage. This is an exhortation. Paul's not condemning anybody. And he says in verse 9, Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we're confident of better things in your case 
things that accompany salvation. So we take this as a warning. We take this as a, as a uh-oh, if I mess up, I got, God's done with me. I've lost my salvation. And Paul says no. He's explaining why they can't go back to Judaism. And he's warning them to be sure. But then he closes by saying, look, I know you. You're, you're, you're my friends. And I'm confident of better things in your case, things that accompany salvation. So, you know, I get questions all the time about Hebrews, especially chapter 6, Mitch. And it's always problematic for me. It is always when they start talking about, we can lose your salvation, it says so right here, when in fact that's not what it says, just the opposite is what it says. And I think, I read through Hebrews, and I find that the single most secure book in our New Testaments regarding our salvation. People ask me, can you lose your salvation? I always say, I don't want to. So the answer is no. Hope that makes sense to you, Mitch. 340-9585. Here's an anonymous question. Pastor Ron, have you ever cast out demons from someone? Uh, I've encountered demons uh, and have struggled with demons um, a, a couple of times, anonymous. And it's not something you ever want to do. You know, I don't know why false teachers in particular, they make it sound like it's so romantic, it's the worst thing ever. Uh, Paul and I, we did a ministry in the nursing home, our first ministry together, um, even before Bible college and, and, and of course, becoming a pastor. Um, in a nursing home, and there's a lot of demon possession in nursing homes, believe me. And uh, there was one lady who was trying to disrupt our service. We were We were doing a worship service. And I just started teaching. And there was this one lady who just started screaming and screeching. It was awful. Now, this is a lady. Her name was Judy, her, her given name. And um, um, she, she was going back and forth in her wheelchair. And this lady who couldn't even move on her own. And um, I didn't really recognize what it was because I was trying to focus on teaching the Bible to those who wanted to hear and Paula was was um, trying to help. She walked over to this lady, Judy, and she touched her on the shoulder. And as soon as she touched her, Judy looked straight at me with the craziest eyes ever. I mean, they were literally spinning. And she looked at me with a, I want to kill you look, and made these horrible noises. And Paula, just by touch, instantly got sick. Instantly she was sick, nauseous and uh, feeling lightheaded and, and instantly. So I went over and, and got Paul away from her. And all I did was look her right in the eye. And I said, I didn't call her Judy. I just looked her right in the eye and I said, you know who I am. And you know to whom I belong. And in the name of Jesus Christ... You need to go, or I'm going to cast you out. And you could see for a moment, just a glimpse, I got to talk to Judy for a minute, but I was speaking directly to the demon, or demons, plural, I don't know how many in her. And I was preparing for a fight, which would have been horrible. Um, and you could see, almost see the, the wheels turning. And as a relatively new believer at the time, I'm convinced that Jesus was there, he helped me. And the decision that the demon made was to leave and 
Judy left that room going faster in a wheelchair than I've ever seen anybody move in a wheelchair before. So that's my primary um, face-to-face confrontation with a demon. Uh, I've had people that I suspected were demon-possessed. We've had some people come to the church uh, for prayer uh, and, and, um, and, and cast out demons from them. The problem is with casting out demons is that unless they're willing to accept Christ, you're not helping them by casting out the demon. And often I will say, are you ready to receive Jesus Christ? Because if if not, then I don't want to do this because it'll be worse for you at the end than at the beginning. And if they're not ready, I just tell them to go. And and but but please don't misunderstand me. This is not something that's spiritual. It's not something that you do uh, to show how strong or how mature you are as a Christian. There is nothing uglier. Uh, oftentimes, nothing smellier. And nothing more dangerous than trying to mess with demons inside a person. Um, the only other thought, Anonymous, is that if you're not right with God, then the last thing you want to do is encounter a demon. The last thing. The seven sons of Siva in the book of Acts. They wanted to get on the casting out of demons business. In the name of the Jesus that Paul proclaims, I command you to come out. And the demons looked at those seven sons of Siva and said, Well, Paul I know, and Jesus I know. But who are you? And of course, then the demons, using the human host, uh, beat him to the point where they left bleeding and naked. That's how badly they were beaten. This isn't something that you ever want to mess with. So, hope that helps. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from another anonymous one. I really feel like the devil is trying to destroy me. What verses would help me with the temptation I am dealing with? Anonymous, I can promise you that the devil is trying to destroy you. This isn't a matter of how you feel or maybe this is happening Jesus said he is a thief and a murderer. He's a liar. He is a destroyer. So he is trying to destroy you. But here's what you've got to understand. You you no longer have to give in to his power. I think what you need to do is read Romans, the the first eight chapters, and, and really focus on what God has done for you. We're no longer under the control of sin but as a believer we're under the control of righteousness and that means that you don't have to give in the devil is going to be there he's going to without mercy he's going to try to get you to fall but sin no longer is your master righteousness is and if you really understand that if you really believe that then you know that when the temptation comes, then you don't have to deal with it. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 says, and this is one you ought to have memorized, uh, it says that uh, no temptation has seized you except that which is common to man. What that means simply is that whatever you're being tempted with, it's not just you. Uh, it's, it's a temptation that, that the, the enemy has used over and over and over again. In other words, other people have been tempted as you're being tempted, 
and they've overcome it. So too can you. No temptation has seized you except that which is common to man. The next words are really critical. And God is faithful. Those four words change everything. It doesn't say you're faithful. It says he's faithful. And then it goes on to say he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. And when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so that you can stand up under the temptation. Now I want you to think about that for a moment. He just promised you that the devil cannot destroy you. You don't have to give in. So when you're tempted, put down whatever you're doing and go walk with Jesus. Open your Bible. I had a young man not too many years ago talking to me about the terrible problem he was having with lust. And and he said, well, well, what can I do? He comes to me at all hours of the night. He wakes me up, even comes in my dreams and have all these lustful dreams. And I said, it's simple. Have a Bible by your bed. And when the dreams come or when the temptations come, turn on the light and open up your Bible and begin to read it. And he goes, I can't do that. It's the middle of the night. And I said, well, wait a minute. What happens when you give in to the temptation? You get up in the middle of the night, don't you? And he said, yeah. And I said, well, just change your reaction. Believe me, if the devil knows every time he's going to tempt you, you're going to open your Bible. He's going to try another approach. So we don't have to give in to temptation. we got to realize that the power that raised Christ from the dead lives in us. And this is a battle. As long as you keep giving in, the enemy's winning. He's not going to give up. He is ruthless. He is without mercy. And he wants to destroy you. He wants to destroy your witness. And yet Jesus has defeated him. Romans chapter 8. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Verse 31, the same chapter, if God is for us, who can be against us? So understand the nature of the battle. He is trying to kill you. But Jesus has robbed him of his power over you. It takes faith to believe it because when the temptation comes, it's often a horrible battle. But you take that step of faith, Acts 5.32, and the Holy Spirit will come behind you with this power to defeat the enemy, his lies, and free you of the temptations. Here is a question from Bree. Please, how to explain to judge someone in light of Jesus saying that we are not to judge? Well, Bree, um, I, we misunderstand the idea of judging someone. Judge not, lest ye be judged by God, Jesus said. And we take that and say, well, you see, if somebody's doing something wrong, you can't say anything because that's judging them. Well, that's not at all what he means. We're told repeatedly to to examine fruit in people's lives. We're told to look at the kind of life they're living, and then we can make a conclusion about who they're living for. So what Jesus is saying is don't judge somebody's heart. You can't consign anybody to hell. Galatians 6 says God uh, will not be mocked. He knows those who are his. Our problem is that we all want to know who belongs to God and who doesn't. Well, that's not our purview. So we can't judge someone's heart. We can't judge someone's motives. 
but we are commanded to judge their behavior in the light of Scripture. No, not in the light of our own personal opinions. Somebody's having a drink. We can't judge him saying something, well, you know, if they were a Christian, if they were really saved, they wouldn't be drinking, because the Bible doesn't forbid somebody to have a drink. Now, if somebody is living in a willful lifestyle of rebellion, then we are obligated to tell them that this is a life that doesn't please God. This is a life that will result in you not inheriting the kingdom of God. We go right to the Bible and say that if somebody's living a sexually immoral life, we can say, you got to stop it. You're not going to go to heaven. And often they will say something, well, don't judge. Well, I'm not judging your heart. I'm judging the lifestyle that I see with my eyes. And if you go through the scriptures, especially the epistles, you see wicked lifestyles being judged over and over and over and over. Not hearts, but lifestyles. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul singles out a man in the church, probably a wealthy, influential person in the church, who is living in such disgusting sexual immorality that Paul says, not even pagans do that kind of stuff. And he chews the church at Corinth out. He says, you, you, why don't you put this man out? As for me, he says, I've already judged such a man and handed him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Now that sounds really, really judgy, doesn't it? But if you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, written about six months later, Paul's methods worked because this man now was coming back to the church asking for mercy. And and they were asking Paul, well, what do we do now? I mean, we put him out, but now he wants to come back. Paul says, look, he's suffered enough. He's come back to Jesus. Welcome him as you would a brother. And if we'll do that, Bree, then we know we're not judging their heart. We're simply judging their lifestyle. And in light of 1 Corinthians 6 and Galatians chapter 5, this is something that's got to be really, really important to us. We've got to care enough about these people and their eternal destiny to say when you're doing something wrong, you've got to stop it. And if they say you're not supposed to judge, well, that's pretty much an indication of where their heart is. It's really important. So we look at lives, we look at behavior. We can judge it right or wrong, not because we think so, but because the Bible clearly says this is right or this is wrong. But we're not to judge your hearts. Final thought on this, and then we're out of time for this show today. Uh, I had a man a long time ago who was a Christian, he said, and and uh, I was getting him some Christian stuff from the Bible College bookstore and uh, found out he was living with a woman he wasn't married to. And I went to him and I said, how could you do this? I mean, how could you have peace in your life knowing that Jesus says, don't do things you're doing? He said, Ron, I haven't had peace in my life for years. And he eventually repented. If I had judged him as an unbeliever, I'd have been wrong. So that's why we're protected. Bree, thanks for the question. Hey, we'll be back tomorrow on AM 630 The Word at 4 o'clock. Uh, sweet Summer Devotions tonight. Uh, Tanya Pennell is the speaker. God bless you. See you tomorrow. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. 
The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Hallelujah.